over the Bible from 30,000 feet, we are now at the church of Corinth. Corinth is a city that prided itself on its culture. It abounded with studios and workshops and schools of business and philosophy. There was a large amphitheater in Corinth that would seat between 18 and 20,000 people. They had a concert hall that would seat 3,000. They had um, games that they would have there yearly that attracted some of the finest athletes in all the Roman Empire to these games. They prided themselves on their intellectualism, and yet at the same time they lived in a very degraded and shallow type of life. Corinth was a city that was a business leader, In the world, the trade, it was able to to be a key location. And because of that, they had people from every race, every background, every social strata that you could imagine. And um, they, they were an active, busy, busy community, not just a community. They were a large cosmopolitan city. The Jews and Orientals traded there, and um, the Romans would do official business there, brought their sailors, their salesmen, their bankers, people from every corner of the Mediterranean world would, would come to Corinth. They um, also were one of the most wicked cities of its time perhaps of all times. It was a city of prostitution and passion. Its religion was the worship of the goddess of sex. Corinth was built at the base of a huge 1,800-foot-high rock that right at the top of this was a temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. Every evening, thousands of priests and priestesses, in reality, male and female prostitutes, would come down from the temple into the streets to ply their trades. It was notorious throughout the Roman Empire for their vileness. It became common to portray the Corinthian on the theater stages as hopeless drunkards. A Corinthian banquet was a reference to vile, profane partying. A Corinthian drinker was an alcoholic. A Corinthian life meant a life of luxury and sexual vice. A Corinthian girl meant a loose and immoral woman. In those days, there were what was known as a Corinthian sickness. It was the inevitable physiological and psychological results 
of having lived a vile and destitute life of any morals. So, this was the city that the Apostle Paul came to alone to preach the gospel to this city. A few weeks earlier, before coming to the to Corinth, he had been horribly persecuted in Macedonia. He had just left Athens, where he and his message were rejected by the intellectual Athenians. He arrived in Corinth, and their brash, arrogant, luxurious, vile lifestyle. Paul came without companions, without money, without friends, and no doubt his heart was burdened when he saw the condition of the city of Corinth. Yet, this is where God called him and brought him there to minister to Paul at a time of great need in his life, and also for him to minister. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I just want us to read just the first few verses. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So, Paul had gone to the church at Corinth. He had seen God work in amazing ways, saving people from a vile lifestyle, seeing them called together to to establish a church. And Paul had gone on his way, and he'd heard a report that there was division in the church, and there were other problems. And he's writing this letter now back to them to try to correct some of these problems, um, to deal with these, to answer some questions that that they may have had, and the grace and the power of God had been mightily at work in the church at Corinth. And yet, there were some some issues that came up. You notice verse 2, it says, To the church of God, 
which is at Corinth. This is an interesting phrase that really suggests the theme of this epistle. The church of God, which is at Corinth. How do you put those two? We, we, we just painted a, a brief little sketch of Corinth, how wicked that city was. And now you have a group of believers that are living in this city. Um, the church of God, the community of God's people who share life in God and with God, are now in this city. They have been saved out of the lifestyle of Corinth. They're now walking with a different master and uh, rejoicing in the forgiveness of sin that they have in Jesus Christ. But they are in a in a city that is antagonistic to the purposes of God. And so you have these two worldviews, if you please, that stand in direct contrast and direct conflict to one another. Sometimes we living in our society think, oh my, you know, everything around us may be in such conflict and contrast. God's work has always been that way from the very beginning. Really, we in America have been very favored that throughout our history, generally speaking, um, the culture in America has been very friendly to Christianity. And maybe as we see it turning the other other way, um, it causes us much concern. But that's the way it's been throughout all of history. And so there is this definite contrast. They are, as we saw in the Gospel of John when we went through it, they are in the world, but but Jesus did not pray that God would take them out of the world, but that they would be protected while in the world and that they would be the light in this world. What city needed a greater light than the city of Corinth? And so there is this contrast. Well, one of the things that happen is the culture influences the church. It's something that has to be battled, has been battled all throughout history, that we face even today. The culture influences the church. And at the church at Corinth, they were very much influenced by the church. So I want us today to look at just a few things of, in a general sense of the church at Corinth, what we learn from this first epistle. You'll go into more detail on Wednesday night in your small groups as you go through this. But one of the first things that stands out to me is that, number one, churches are very important to God. We've seen already in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Beginning in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 
1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, all eight of those books were written specifically to local churches. Churches are very important to God. First and Second Timothy, the next books, and Titus were written to pastors of churches. So here's Paul. We've seen as we're coming through Acts and now Romans, Paul bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. Now God is writing to specific groups of believers, specific churches, and and this is the first book of eight books directly addressed to the believers at Corinth. But we also rapidly understand, and we know this, churches have problems. Amen? We hate to say it, we hate to admit it, but needless to say, where there is a worldly culture... And you have a group of believers, there will be problems. But where, let's forget the worldly culture right now, where there are people, there will be problems. Right? I mean, that's a fact of life. Where there are people, there will be problems. Where there are believers, there will be problems. The church at Corinth had serious problems. You will see as you get in and study it. They they had disunity. They were divided up. Some said, I like Paul. Others said, no, I, I like Apollos. And so on. There was jealousy. There was worldliness. There was immorality. They were taking each other as believers They were taking each other to court, fighting about issues, going before this vile community and asking them to solve issues between two Christian brothers. There were major marriage problems in this church. There were severe disagreements about social issues. They had corrupted the Lord's Supper. They selfishly had um, tried to exercise their spiritual gifts in the flesh. They manifested a lack of love. Um, there was false, deep, false teaching or doubts about the resurrection. There was dinginess in their giving. I mean, these are all things that were in the church at Corinth. Imagine, and in, in some cases you don't have to, but imagine a church that was racked by divisions, powerful leaders promoting themselves against each other. Um, imagine in the church... Someone having an affair with his stepmother, and instead of disciplining him, instead of even addressing it, many in the church were boasting of the freedom in Christ to behave in such a way. This was the church at Corinth. This is what was going on there. As we mentioned, um, 
Christians suing each other in secular courts, um, Christians visiting prostitutes, and the the backlash of all of this, of all these problems. There were some on one hand that said you should be completely celibate in in marriage, and others swung the pendulum clear the other way, and and um, they said that. Just about anything goes in the physical realm. And the debates raged over the roles of men and women. Um, there, as we said, there were people that were immature believers, were abusing spiritual gifts. And it, and it goes on and on and on. And honestly, it sounds like much of what takes place in churches today. Sad to say. God really loves church. He gave his son for it, Ephesians 5 tells us. But churches have problems. One, as we said, because we're in the world and we bring a lot of the baggage, but apart from that, because we have the flesh and Christians, when they walk in the flesh behave no differently than the world. But God expects believers to act differently than the world that we live in. And this is primarily what the book of Acts is about. He's writing and he's saying, you are believers and I expect you to act differently than the culture that you are in. This book is an exhortation to godly living. The Corinthian church was not primarily guilty of heresy, meaning false teaching. That wasn't primarily, although they did have some of that. Theirs was, was by and large, their biggest problem was they were, they were living in worldly manners, fleshly manners, and it was a reproach to the name of God, and and it it affected their lives and their testimony. The problem was not the problem. The problem was how they responded to the problem. In your life, the problem is not that problems come into your life. The problem is how do you respond to the problems that come into your life. And Paul is writing to them, and he's saying, this is how you should respond to this problem. Not like everybody around you responds, not like you used to respond. We are believers. We are followers of Jesus Christ, and so we should respond differently to the problems that come into our life. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you're familiar with the Scriptures, you probably say, oh, that's the resurrection chapter. And indeed it is. But we come to this chapter, and in verse 1, Paul is writing, moreover, brethren, he's addressed some of their, 
their division, some of their immorality. He's now, there were some misunderstandings about the resurrection. But in this, beginning in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, by which you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he goes on and says he was seen by Cephas and and the twelve and five hundred brethren and so on. In verses 3 and 4, we have the gospel in a nutshell. Paul wrote to them and he said to them, I preach to you the gospel and you received it and that's what you're standing in now. What's the gospel? The gospel is this. Verse 3, Christ Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and that he rose again and that alone gives forgiveness of sin. And he says, this is what you stand. You must have this if you are going to respond to the problems that come into your life in a biblical manner. Not like the world around us responds. Not like we used to respond. Not like our family responds. Not like our heritage responds. But like God wants us to. There must be this foundation. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Crucified buried and rose again, and that's what I am trusting for the forgiveness of my sin. That's good news. It's not up to me. He paid the penalty for my sin. So he's reminding these believers. He's calling them to live a godly life, and he says the foundation has to be there. 1 Corinthians 3, he says the foundation has to be there. Now you're building on that foundation, Jesus Christ. Is that foundation in your life today? Have you personally called upon Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin? And so Paul says, again, that foundation has to be there. But now, it's not just enough that that foundation is there. He says, now, as a believer in Jesus Christ... Respond to these problems that come in. There's problems of jealousy. No, don't respond like that. You may be prone to be jealous, but he says, no. Some plant, some water, God gives the increase. We're a team here. This is how we ought to respond. He says there there comes in um, problems of of quarreling about things and and rather than suffering loss and settling it and and being at peace no you're taking it to court he says brother against brother don't you have someone in your church that could could help bring peace in this this is how we ought to solve these problems see he's saying the christian faith ought to make a difference in our life The Christian faith 
is not a moral problem, it's a spiritual problem, deals with the spiritual problem that then is manifested in affecting the moral problems in our life. This book of 1 Corinthians attests to the power of the gospel to change lives. These were people, some of them had had been slaves to sin, all of them had been slaves to sin in various forms, and they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, they responded, and now their sins are forgiven, they have a new master, they, they have a, a new purpose in life, and they are called to this, but living in this world and their own nature, it was easy for them to not live by this new standard. But they had been given new life. It was a testimony of the grace and power of God. And now Paul is saying to them, live your life in such a manner that others could see Jesus Christ in your life. Live a life of moral purity and depend on God's Spirit for that. Live a life of generosity. Live a life of selfless service. And he's saying to them, God didn't come to just forgive us of our sin and let us go on living like we lived before. He now expects us to respond differently to the problems that come into our life. So, we understand churches are very important to God. Churches have problems. And you can run from church to church, but wherever you go, one of my most famous um, quotes that I like by Yogi Berra, wherever you go, there you are. And that says a lot. Because wherever we are, we bring problems with us. But as a believer, we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, and we ought to respond differently to those problems And God designed the church to manifest a self-sacrificing love. If I say 1 Corinthians 13, most of you think of the love chapter. Most of you think of weddings. Most of you think of something along that line. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13 is not limited to weddings. In fact, it was written to a church, to a group of believers. And and all of these problems that you'll read about as you go through the, the book of 1 Corinthians, all of these problems would be solved if they had genuine love in their heart. I'm not talking about a a sensual type of love. I'm talking about a self-sacrificing love as given in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And, and what God has called us to is this, to love God and to love others. On, all, on those two commands hang all the other laws and the prophets. So it, it's pretty simple. God wants me to love God. And to love others. And it's a love as divine, as defined in 1 Corinthians 13. 
I'm just going to quickly go through this, but I would challenge you, even this afternoon, to go home and read 1 Corinthians 13 and, and ask yourself, who do I love like this? And you know what? Most of us will say, the only one I love like this is me. Because we have a great love for ourselves. But notice the character. This is what he's saying to the church at Corinth. This is what we should be known as. That this vile world around us in Corinth, he's saying, they should look at us and, and see this. Not seeing this immorality in the church. Not seeing us fighting with each other and jealousy and all these other problems that he addressed. This is what they should see. Notice 1 Corinthians 3. And 13 and verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Whether there be prophecies, they will fail. Whether there be tongues, they will cease. Whether there be knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. When I was a child... I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as also I am known. Now abideth faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And he said earlier in the chapter, though I give my body to be burned, though I give all my goods to feed the poor, do I do all these wonderful works? If I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now you go back and think through the things that it says there. This is genuine love. Paul's saying, To the church at Corinth. This is what God has called us to do. And if God has called us to this, and he's given us his spirit in it, this is what God expects from us, and this is the standard. Regardless of the culture around us, regardless of the flesh within us, and this is what God expects of the church, and you and I are the church. So, the, the overview is, God places a, a, a great deal of importance on, on the church. Churches indeed have problems. How we respond to the problems is the key. And the thing that would solve it all is if we acted in God's love. As I was looking through Corinthians and, and was reminded of these truths, I thought, you know what? We need to repent 
And there may be some here today that need to repent of the rejection of the gospel. I don't need his death, burial, and resurrection. I'm good enough in myself. Or I have my own religion or whatever. And you've rejected the gospel. You need to repent and turn to Jesus Christ or there is no hope of heaven in your life at all. Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. I think we need to examine our own hearts to see our attitude toward church. If this is, if this is that important to God, it's not just something that I come and spectate at. It's not just something that I come and critique. It's not just something that I casually participate in. This is the one institution that will last for all eternity. Family will not last for all eternity. Government will not last for all eternity. The only other institution God established is the church, and it alone will last for all eternity. And it has a top priority in God's heart and mind. He's gifted you, and he talks about the gifts. How are the gifts supposed to be used? In the church body, to edify and build up one another. He talks about all these issues, and they're all in light of this. I think many times we in America need to repent of our attitude toward church, and I also think we need to repent of our response to people and problems. We write people off, we criticize people, we put down people, we despise people, we avoid people. You live in a pretty small world when you keep that up. God designed us for fellowship with God and with one another. And how we respond to people, 1 Corinthians, he's correcting them in their responses to people. How are you responding to the people God has brought into your life? And I think we need to come back and repent of our lack of genuine love. God, teach me to love like you love. And once you begin on that road, God puts the plow in and he starts plowing deeply. But honestly, 1 Corinthians brings out someday every one of us will give account to God our work, your life, your building, your building in this life. And it will be tried by fire, 1 Corinthians 3 tells us. And if it's done in the works of the flesh, if it's done apart from the work of the Spirit, apart from genuine love, whatever is not of love, if I give all my goods to feed the poor but don't have love, it profits me nothing. Our life is going to be tried by fire, and if it was that which is eternal, it will remain Gold, silver, and precious stone will be purified by fire. If it was of our efforts, for our glory, for some earthly means, it will be gone. And that's what he said. It profits nothing. 
I believe every one of us here, repent means to turn around. I believe every one of us here, myself included, we need to repent. Some need to repent of their rejection of the gospel. Some need to repent of their attitude toward church. Some of their response to people and problems. And probably all of us of our lack of genuine love. You know, honestly, we have no grounds to arrogantly think we're better than the church at Corinth. In fact, much of the culture we live in is very similar, and much of the culture has influenced us. And truly, I believe God calls us to repentance. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would truly make personal in our lives the application of these truths. Lord, I have no idea what people's hearts are, and I don't need to know. But you know exactly what our hearts are. And Lord, I pray so that our life is not lived in vain. I pray so that there will be profit from this life, I pray that we would love what you love. Lord, I pray if there is one person here today who has never turned from their sin to trust your death and resurrection for their forgiveness of sins, Lord, I pray today they would call upon you for the forgiveness of sin. And then, Lord, I pray that our lives would truly manifest the godly lifestyle that you want us to live, that we would be an example of the difference that you make in lives. So, Lord, may your Spirit make clear the steps of obedience you want us to take. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.